she submitted it. And to my surprise, they're like, you win. You get one. And I was thinking, this is excellent. Until they send you this email saying, you need to prepare your acceptance speech. And it can only be, I think, 30 seconds long or 45 seconds max. They'll cut you off. And you need to be short. You need to be pithy. Say something that'll make the editors keep you in the edit when this thing airs. And I was struggling with this uh, because this is in 2010. I had not done a lot of public speaking at that point and definitely never even thought of doing a YouTube video at that point. And so this kind of wrecked me. Like I can be there on stage. I can grab this statue. I can hold it up, but I don't want to say anything because I'm still not comfortable speaking. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, how a shy kid from Vietnam found art and built two seven-figure businesses doing what he loves. Today, we are talking with Chris Doe. If you are a designer or a designer, let's say adjacent, chances are you know of Chris Doe. He has nearly half a million followers on Instagram. Yeah, like almost 500,000. The YouTube channel hosted by his company, The Future, has just under a million. Both of these numbers are at the time I'm recording this, And I have no doubt that if you're listening to this episode after this time, the numbers will even be much higher. And before we get into my conversation with Chris, if you like and enjoy the show, please take a minute or two to rate us and review us over at iTunes or Spotify. iTunes and Spotify use these ratings as part of the algorithm that determines ratings on their charts. You know what? Better yet, please recommend this show to at least one friend you think will like it. Friends share Baby Got Backstory and don't keep it all to themselves. This spirit of generosity is touched on in today's episode, as you'll soon hear. So go out and share the show with someone you love. Today's guest is Chris Doe. He's the founder of two seven-figure businesses, the first of which is Blind, an Emmy award-winning motion design studio with over 80 million in total billings. The second is the future. Spelled sort of funny with no E at the end. An online education company whose mission is to teach 1 billion people how to make a living doing what they love. He is also the author of A Pocket Full of Dough, which sums up more than two decades of entrepreneurship, teaching, creativity, coaching, and learning scaled down into potent bite-sized lessons that can be ingested quickly. I'm reading it right now, and quite enjoying it. One billion people, that is a big vision. And I want to be completely transparent. I am a Christo fan. Right around the dawn of the pandemic, I was chatting with my friend Greg about business models and something or other. And he said, do you know Chris Doe? He's doing something really interesting with the future. And after we worked through my confusion that the future was the name of the company and not some measure of time, I strolled over to the future via the internet, and it was like I climbed a mountain, and as I got to the peak, my aperture opened up to a view I had never seen before. 
there were all these creatives, mainly designers, but also what I'm now calling designer-adjacent professions, brand strategists, photographers, filmmakers, YouTubers, Instagrammers. My mind was blown. I did a little more snooping, but it didn't take long before I joined his community, and it's one of the best decisions I've made in my business. So I love me some Chris Doe, and even though I'm a part of his community, I really don't know Chris. I don't know much about him. And today, we're going to change all that. We're all going to get to know Chris Doe. And this is his story. Hey, Chris. So thanks for joining us today on the podcast. And I want to get right into it. What is the future? (laughs) What is the future? It's the thing that happens after today. But if you're talking about my future, the future that we've created, it's an online education platform where we're where we have this big, hairy, audacious goal to teach 1 billion people on planet Earth how to make a living doing what they love without selling their soul. That is a big, audacious goal. And mm-hmm. I think that you're well on your way. Now, you know, now that we know kind of where we're, we're, we're at, I kind of want to know how this all started. And, and I've heard you talk a lot about in, in bites, not like real specifics and kind of like mm-hmm. bite-sized pieces about how you grew up and, and, and what it was like as, as a young, young child. And so like, where did you grow up? And, uh, what, what was life like for young Chris Doe? Mm. I, I was actually born in Saigon, Vietnam and my family, as well as many other families fled at, when it fell to uh, communism in, in 1975. So we arrived here in the United States in Kansas city, Missouri, where we lived there for a couple of years and were ultimately moved to San Jose, California. That's kind of where I grew up. I grew up in the valley around computers, but not a lot of inspiration. I don't, I hope I'm not offending a whole lot of people. It's not like a cultural center. And so I, I grew up like, like a lot of kids in the valley. I skateboarded, I, I, I sketched, I drew, I, I made things. And I was mostly kind of a shy, introverted kid. Yeah. And what did your parents do for a living? Both my parents worked in the tech space. My dad, uh, uh, was an engineer for a company called Applied Materials. I think they, they do semiconductor kind of things. Beyond that, I don't know. My mom worked as a designer drafter for IBM until she uh, ultimately retired. Oh, this is all, all of a sudden making a lot of, a, a lot of sense. The Christo I know today, uh, combina- <laughs> combination of the two, actually. Yeah. And so, you know, I've, I've heard you allude to this a little bit, but I, I have to imagine it it probably wasn't all that easy growing up as a Vietnamese immigrant in Northern California, especially, you know, coming you know on the heels of the fall of Saigon. I mean, there was probably some, some anti-Vietnam sentiment. I mean, was it like that or, or you know, was it difficult? It, it was difficult for me. And I don't think uh, I'm sharing anything that's unique. I don't know if there was a specific anti-Vietnamese sentiment. It was just mostly like, hey, you look a lot different than us. You're an Asian kid. And most people just assumed I was Chinese. And that was the go-to racial default box that I fit into. And uh, it, 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 uh, I didn't help myself because I'm a skinny kid. Um, I, I'm not athletic. I, I, I like weird things. I, I like to draw and I mostly keep to myself. I like comic books and things like Dungeons and Dragons. And so naturally the stronger, bigger kids, they they just want to pick on you. Or if you're in the streets, they just want to establish the pecking order. And it's a world I didn't fit into for, for a very long time. 
I'm not sure I ever actually fit into that world. And uh, I, I was bullied, but uh, luckily I had an older brother. Uh, he's four years older than me. He told me that bullies just like an easy target. So if you stand up for yourself, even if you get your butt whooped, they'll leave you alone because they just want to move on to another target. They're trying to establish their kind of alphaness, if you will, their their dominance over you. So you just stand up for yourself. And so I got to tell you, I mean, it's it's almost like literally like as I'm, I transferred from one school to the other, because as a kid, we, we moved a lot. My parents got increasingly higher paying jobs and ultimately landed where they're at. So we moved, I, I calculated almost every year and a half. So it was dreadful for me because it meant that I couldn't put my roots down. I didn't establish long-term relationships. And this has haunted me to this day. And when I would go to new school, and, and it wasn't like they, they timed it perfectly. Like at the beginning of the school year, it was kind of the school year already started. And so I can tell you almost within a day or two, somebody's going to pick a fight with me and I was going to get into a fight. I already knew it. I was prepared for it, like mentally, not physically, but mentally I was prepared for it. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, like, did you learn to fight or like, and I, and I have to like, I mean, look, I, I went to a school where everyone got picked on for everything. I mean, you know, I had a last name like Gutman and uh, I had a, a, you know, a father who's Jewish and, and that was enough. So I can't even imagine, you know, yeah. being Vietnamese and, and how that was and how that went down. I could, you know, probably picture some kids doing some Bruce Lee moves or something to taunt you or, or whatever. Right. Like, yeah. did you ever get good at fighting or like, was it just nope. something that like you just had to do? <laughs> it's just, you had to do it and you don't have to get that good. All you have to do is just say like, I'm not going to take this. Let's fight. And, uh, and, and then they're thrown for a loop. Right. And I remember I'm not looking to pick a fight. I don't want to get into a fight with people, but they did things that would draw you, I think, into a fight. Like I remember one time on the playground and this was just a couple of days into school. Um, my, my brother who's only a year younger was in a grade below me, obviously. And he was playing around. And the next thing I know, somebody had kicked his lunch bag and his entire juice and his sandwich was everywhere. And they did that just like a soccer kick. It wasn't I accidentally stepped on it. And then I had to confront these guys because, look, here's the thing. I don't get along with my brother. At least back then I didn't get along with him. But he's family and you don't get to pick on family. So my blood was boiling. I'm like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, it was an accident. I'm like, yeah, I said, BS, that's not an accident. And they're like, what are you going to do about it? And then pushing happens and it's like, okay, we're going to get him fight after school. And that's exactly kind of how it played out. Yeah. And, you know, it, I don't know if it's just kind of my general uh, who I attract on the podcast, but there seems to be this running theme of of guests on the podcast that have they didn't fit in other places. But the one place yeah. they did fit in was in skate culture like this, there, there was something about skateboarding. I mean, that's how I grew up. I mean, that's what ultimately drew me to California. I had, you know, these images of Thrasher and kids in Venice Beach and the Dogtown guys and everything. And I was like, oh, and then I got there and I was like, oh, it doesn't quite look like that. But, um, you know, what was it about skateboarding that resonated with you and that was where you found a place to find yourself? Yeah, this answer to that question is going to sound horrible, but I was mostly drawn to skateboarding because the graphics on these skateboards just mesmerized me. They were hypnotic. I remember going to town and country, like inside the mall, I think it's called town and country or something like that, or, or one of these skate uh, lifestyle surf shops, I'd go in there and I was like, oh, this is cool. I look at the t-shirts and I look at the back display wall behind the counter and had all the boards laid out there from Visions Streetwear, the Psycho Stick Man, Mark Gonzalez, his skateboard, Christian Hosoy, the hammerhead with him just doing the iconic move that he was doing. 
I was just kind of mesmerized by these things. And I see that people are skating. It's a solitary endeavor. And I just wanted to learn. One of my friends had a cheap skateboard and he was saying like, yeah, let's go learn how to ollie together. And we would just practice on the grass. I'm like, oh, I think I can do this. And it took him weeks when I just stepped on it. It's like I worked on it. It took me a couple of days. I'm like, oh, this could be kind of fun. And I think for a lot of artists and illustrators and graphic designers, skateboarding is a gateway drug into graphic design. So I was right there with you. Thrasher magazines, Thrasher magazine, Transworld skateboarding magazine, and just kind of living vicariously through these images and words. Like I think it's Craig Stesek who started to to kind of create this idea in the culture. And he's credited for helping to at least create part of the skateboarding subculture here in Santa Monica, Venice. And so, yeah, I, I was drawn into that. Yeah, did you have a, or do you remember a, a favorite deck design that uh, that you remember today? Oh yeah, and and so I, I made the mistake of picking decks based on their design, not necessarily the the manufacturing or the shape of it. And I, I figured that out later on. But I loved almost every design from Santa Cruz, um, uh, the the Corey O'Brien. A Grim Reaper with a fireball. That that thing was awesome. Rob Roskop with the the crazy face and the hand breaking through the target. I also loved a bunch of designs that came from from Powell Peralta. So these are like the big skateboarding companies, and they they could afford to hire like trained artists to work on their their designs. So Steve Caballero, the dragon, amazing. Mike McGill with the skull and the rattlesnake coming out of his head, and Tony Hawk's skull skull hawk or skull bones or whatever that's called. That thing was awesome. Yeah, it's so awesome. I made the same mistake too. I think I had a vision hippie stick at one point and that was not the right <laughs> board, but I liked the way it looked. And then I think my all-time favorite yeah. was the Lance Mountain. But I also think, because I thought Lance Mountain was like such a cool name. I was like, like yeah. Mark, I was like, I'm Mark Gutman. I want to be Lance Mountain. Like, that's cool. You know? like, that, that's, that is a very cool name. Yeah, right? Like, like who doesn't want to be Lance Mountain? So, you know, you're growing up, like, were you a good student? I was an above average student. I think uh, I graduated high school with a 3.8 something GPA. And I think I would have gotten a 4.0 GPA, but I just didn't really care about school. And school came relatively easy. And something to kind of keep in mind, like my both my parents have incredibly large families, siblings, you know, like my dad has, I think 10 brothers and my mom, 10 brothers and sisters. And my mom has an equal amount on her side. So there were no shortage of uncles and aunts around us all the time, especially in the beginning. It's like a very typical immigrant thing, right? You live in a relatively small house with, and it's packed with all your relatives. And so I, I would hang out with them. I lost my train of thought here. What was your question again? <laughs> were you a good student? Oh, yeah. What was, was the and, opening question? Yeah, yeah. Here we go. So sorry about that. So a little brain fart there. So we, I had uncles, basically my dad's younger brother, brothers who, who didn't have a lot to do because they were like either going to college or something like that. And they would make sure we learned all our arithmetic and multiplication and division. And this is before I even went to first grade. So for a long while, I was like coasting like, God, America is so easy. Uh, because back at home, it was brutal. It's like, you're going to get whipped with a chopstick or a ruler if you didn't memorize these things. And so when they were doing basic addition, I was like, I'm already into like long division here. Like, what is the holdup? And I, I remember in a couple of instances, I think it was between third and fourth grade, where because of budget cuts, I went to public high school, by the way, because of budget cuts, they smashed two grades together. And so while they were teaching the third graders, uh, the, uh, they would switch, uh, every other day or something like that. The fourth graders were kind of learning. I was just sitting there listening and I was just learning so much from the fourth graders and applying it right to the third grade. So for a long time, 
I, I just coasted and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty late. I'm a pretty lazy, smart guy. And so I kind of just figure out like the bare minimum, like I could, I could learn the vocabulary words or the spelling words just uh, the night before and just ace the test. It wasn't a big deal. I just never really applied myself. Yeah. And so, and through, through that uh, description and kind of relive of, of your uh, academic time, you're, you're talking all about kind of core academic courses like where what where does like design and drawing and where is that residing in your life is that like a side thing is that a secret thing it's a side thing it's not so secret but i i um i just uh would pour over these comic books and i i didn't have a lot of them in the beginning and so i would just like go over them again and again so after you read the story you'd reread it and then you start looking at the ads and studying every little ads about sea monkeys and growing muscles and standing up to the bully. I would just get into all of that. There's nothing that I didn't love from cover to cover, including the smell of the pulp, the paper. And it just had this sweet smell to it. And I loved that. And I would draw and I would make my own comics. Not very good, but I would sit there and practice. And then uh, like many people, I discovered the book, How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way. And it was just so mind-blowing, just trying to draw like the way it was instructed in the book. And so this is what I was doing. Uh, but in terms of like public high school or public schools, there, there aren't a lot of art programs. But every time there was an elective, I chose something that was going to allow me to work with my hands. So in junior high, it was wood shop. And then in high school, I took metals and I took um, commercial art, as it was called back then, and yearbook. And so wherever I could apply this creativity, because I wasn't going to take another foreign language. I was not going to be my thing. Yeah. And like, what did your parents feel about this? I mean, what did they want for you? And what did they think about those classes? Were they encouraging you to do more of these hands-on creative classes? Or was that just kind of like something you did? I mean, what, what was their hope for you at this time? Uh, or even as gr growing up, I mean, I've heard you kind of allude to like, there's this tough Asian parent mentality. Like what was their, what, what did they want for you? Yeah. So this is kind of weird because my mom and dad are the older of their siblings. Like my dad is the oldest male. I think my mom's the second oldest female. And they're very different than their siblings who are very, very strict with their kids. My parents, on the other hand, were setting benchmarks for us to hit, but they didn't really grind us on these things. My, my dad pretty much just put the fear of God in us in that that we can never get a C. A B was barely acceptable. And those those tropes about Asian parents, those parts were true, but they, they weren't very hands-on. They had really no idea what kind of classes I was taking. They're just looking at the grades. Do these grades line up or not? And uh, I remember one time, I'm going to admit this now, I, I had to forge my grades because uh, I knew I didn't do well in a particular class and I got a C. And I knew that uh, uh, coming home with a C with my dad was just going to be the end of it. I, I thought I was going to get kicked out of the house. So every day I would check the mail to kind of find it. And back then they kind of sent these things out and it was like carbon paper on one side, you tear it open. And so I got my grade, I intercepted it, thank God, ripped it open and saw that I got a C. And so my mom has all these drafting tools, like she would... Uh, in, initially do it with traditional tools and then later on using CAD. But in the early days, she had this massive thing. It was like an electric eraser. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these things. You actually plugged it in and I would sit there and just erase that C away. And then I would take, uh, this is pre-Photoshop, everybody. I would take a really blunt pencil just to get it to the right stroke with. And then I would find on the front of the grade a letter B, and I would just carefully trace and change that C to a B using the carbon paper, smudge it a little bit, and kind of just disguise it. 
thank goodness my early days as a Photoshop retoucher worked because my dad wasn't any the wiser. But they didn't really care what kind of classes I took. They just wanted us to be in a good university or college afterwards and then pursue something that's safe, more traditional, doctor, lawyer, lawyer, accountant, something like that. Yeah. So was that kind of the moment you had your first glimpse or appreciation of typography? Were you like, wow, this typography <laughs> can really do something here? No, because I'm dense. I, I did. I'm like, oh, this is good. Like, this could be a service. I was thinking more of an entrepreneur and less like an artist. Like, I wonder if other kids need me to change their thing for them. But that was that. Uh, I, I, I dabbled in design and art and I made things and I, I excelled at them where I applied myself. But I did not uh, put myself in that mental space that this is something I could do for the rest of my life. Because I also believed what my parents led me to believe, which is a career in design in the arts is one of suffering and starving. It's not a realistic career path. Like I, I dreamt of being a, com um, a comic book artist, but I, I was just like, this, this is not real. Like, you know how somebody's resolve, it's like no matter what obstacles are in front of them, they're going to push past them. For me, one person could walk up and say, that's a crazy idea. You never want to be a comic book artist. And I would say, yeah, you're right. And throw that dream away. So the res... That my resolve in terms of become wanting to become a creative person, that didn't happen until later. Yeah. And so as you get through high school with your 3.8 and you mm -hmm. look to the future, where did you go? I mean, did you head on a path to become a, a lawyer, a doctor, accountant? I tried. I applied to UC San Diego, UCLA, and uh, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And I initially thought I was going to apply through the regular program, but I was brainstorming with my older brother. And he said, if you could, since you like art and design, apply there, get in and change your major. So I was trying the old backdoor technique. And I was really surprised when they sent me a follow-up and said, we need to see your portfolio. I was like, portfolio? I have a portfolio? I got these things I did in commercial art class. So I had to go back to my teacher, Mike DeVita, and said, Mike, uh, Mr. DeVita, can, can I have some of these pieces that you held back? And he goes, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm going to apply for an art program. And he's like, huh, okay. So I put it together. I wrote up a, a pretty lame essay. I'm not a writer. And of course, I got rejected out of every one of those schools. And I think in some ways, my parents were super disappointed. They didn't say anything to me, but you could just tell. It's like, I didn't get into any of the schools. And my mom was like, yeah, of course not, because you never apply yourself. But coincidentally, uh, between my junior and senior year, I got, a, I think it was actually my senior year in high school, I got a job working at a silk screening place. And, and this was just pure serendipity. Uh, my, my younger brother's uh, wrestling coach, Rudy, had said, hey, I think your brother draws, right? And, and he's like, yeah, you might want to go and talk to my friend Brad, who does all the silk screening stuff. And the reason why he knew I drew was because friends would ask me to do illustrations for the school newspaper. And that's kind of how people knew I, I drew. And I met with Brad, who owned a silk screening place. And he looked at my portfolio, random art pieces, you know, the same ones that got me rejected out of school, and a couple of drawings. He's like, yeah, you want to do this job? I'm like, sure. So he's like, you're hired. Sit down. And he hired me on the spot. And, and he said, I'm going to pay you 18 bucks an hour. And for context there, minimum wage back then, I think was $350 or $375 an hour. So I'm making four to five times as much as I used to make. And I was thinking, what do I need school for? This is freaking awesome. I can just do this man's work. So basically he made me an inker. 
So he had all these pencil drawings and he would say, okay, here's acetate. Here's a rapidiograph pen. Just ink these things. And he showed me how to do it. Of course, he's the master at doing this. And so I'm doing it and he goes home, right? So I'm working on it. It's like my hands are all shaky. The ink is bleeding everywhere. I'm like, oh, this is a nightmare. And I worked on it. I think three or four hours later, I finished it. And uh, next morning he comes in, I talk to him. I'm like, is this okay? He goes, yeah, this is pretty good. And he looked past the fact that it wasn't perfect. And then he asked me, like, how long did you work on it? I did the typical design thing. I pulled my hours just because I was embarrassed it took me so long. So instead of saying four hours, I'm like, yeah, it took me two and a half hours. Is that great? I got more work for you. Awesome. Awesome. So you're you're screening uh, shirts and whatever kind of material and working for real money, 18 bucks an hour, just crushing. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, the world's your oyster. And so... Like, what happens? Like, how do you end up leaving that job and where do you go next? Yeah, so as I'm doing that, and, and I, I didn't think that this was going to be a serious career for me. I'm, I'm inking the man's drawings, right? I'm not even that good at it. And then I quickly realized the play here isn't to be the guy's employee. The play is to be his partner. So I'd asked him, hey, Brad, how much do you charge to do these things? Like when people give you an assignment, he's like, oh, this is what it is. And I started doing the math in my head. So I thought, hey, I'll go out and I'll sell the work and I'll do the design myself and Brad and his team will print the shirts and I'll make the money in between. So I'd even work for him for that long because I was like, oh, I can hustle and I can do these things. So I was just working there part-time anyways. And so this worked out just fine for me. And I learned firsthand how not to run a business. So I sold shirts and I didn't calculate in there my, my labor. So if I, I sold the shirts for 12 bucks, I thought I got them printed for like five and a quarter and I was going to make the difference between 12 and five and a quarter. So it's like 675 or something like that. But there was a lot of selling, designing, making, going back and forth and assuming all the risk. So at that point, uh, somehow my mom's like, you're, you're like your, your bank account is like nothing. And so I had to borrow money from her to pay off uh, uh, supplies or whatever else I was buying at that time. So my mom was looking at me like, you're a terrible business person. And at that point, I was. Yeah. And so you're not, well, you're figuring things out, right? You're, you're, you're figuring, yeah, out figuring, what, it out. figuring it out. You're learning. And that's how we learn. We, we kind of make mistakes or we, we learn the hard way. But at some point, you kind of move on and you decide you got to go back to school. Yeah, I have to go to school. So high school finishes up and uh, it's summertime. And my, uh, my brother's asking me, hey, you, you want to come and uh, live with me in San Diego? At that point, he had just finished uh, his, his computer science degree in, um, in UC San Diego. So he's like, come live with me. I'm going to prepare for grad school. You can stay with me for the year while I work on this. And I was thinking, this is great. And my, my brother is um, a very special human being that he's always looked after me, even when I didn't deserve it, even when I didn't know this is the thing that I wanted to do. He What's his name? It. His name's Arthur. All right, let's just give a shout out to Arthur. He's always, he's always taking care of you. Just want to make sure he yeah. gets his proper... His proper credit. Like he's here. like my second father, you know, like my dad was busy, but didn't understand the culture. He, he didn't know how to help. He did not grow up here. He doesn't know the system here. And so I go and live with my brother. And this is the time for me to go to community college and to actually make a real effort to get into art school. I already decided at that point in time, I'm going to go to art center. It's what Brad, the silk screening guy told me to do. He's like, go to art center. I'm like, okay. So I don't know anything about art center except for its name. So I'm going to San Diego City College and I'm, I'm taking commercial art classes. I, I'm looking through the catalog of 
these two schools, these two community colleges, Mesa College and San Diego City, and San Diego City offered graphic design classes. I'm thinking, this is it. I'm going to go do this. And that's where I kind of get set on a path. It took me a little while to actually become passionate about design. And uh, eventually I found it. And, and that's how I, I started on my career. I, I finished my portfolio, got into Art Center, and then that was the beginning of everything. Yeah. And, you know, I might have, sh- might have shared this with you before, but my wife went to Art Center. We lived in Southern California for a while. And like, I hadn't really heard of it. You know, I didn't know yeah. what it was. She definitely did. And I remember the first time I went over to that that school, that campus, I walked in some of the buildings and there was like, just like rows and rows of like, of like art and drawings yeah. and material. And, uh, it's very well known for being a, an auto design, uh, program. And you'd see clay mock-ups of all these concept cars. And like, there was something, I, don't, I just like this, this, it was a magical portal into this world that I had really not seen. And I loved it. You know, I'm like actually one of my very first jobs. I worked at Imagineering in this like kind of skunk mm. works in the Valley. And it had that same kind of feeling and allure, like that there were things being made and you didn't really know how or why, but it was just, I just thought it was so, so cool. Like what was, what was your experience when you first kind of got there and, and, and saw art center and, and, you know, did you have the same kind of reaction? Yeah, I, 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 I did. And I, I remember it very clearly. Uh, It's a steel and glass building. It's a long rectangular. It's referred to as the bridge because it, it covers the, this kind of like gap where you drive underneath it. And it's designed by Craig Elwood, I think. And it's stark, it's black, it's minimal. And you walk in there and everything from the concrete, the polished concrete floors to the, the black and white interior, you feel like you're at an art school. You really, really feel it. As soon as you walk in and you see the gallery and you see all this work from all the different majors, from photography, fine art, illustration, graphic design, and transportation design, which which you reference, it's what they're known for. You get the sense like, I'm going to be a designer. I'm a creative human being just by stepping in the building and being a part of the program. So I remember when I got in and I stepped into my very first class, I I just said to myself, like very quietly, like I made it, I made it in. And it was kind of like an accomplishment in itself. And I was proud to like know that I'm an art center student. I'm different than everybody else. Yeah. And were you like an instant star? Were you a star? Like, did you just take off? Were you at the top of your class or did it take some time to figure some things out? It took a little bit to, to, for me to figure it out. But when I say a little bit, I mean, it took me a couple of classes, like, uh, like two or three weeks into it. I'm like, oh, I'm starting to get my bearings here because we're all coming in from different sources. And I think back then the average age was 27 years old. And here I am, I'm a 19 year old kid. So I'm just fresh out of high school, one year in community college, I'm here and I'm like, oh, okay, everybody's got more experience. And you can tell because it's a very expensive school that everybody's affluent. I'm, I'm probably like one of the poor kids going there, relatively speaking, okay? Like we're, we're working class folk, you know, where, where people are driving in their fancy cars. I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm here and I wouldn't uh, describe myself as a star, but I stood out because I just work like an animal. I, I know that people talk about this all the time and they're like, no, but I really, really work like an animal. So I'll tell you kind of how a typical day would work for me. You go to school in the morning and you're there all day, computer labs, a library, the school closes and you go home, you eat dinner. So maybe that's like 10 o'clock. So I just grab, and this is a horrible diet, my diet of Jack in the Box, grab a burger. And then I would go to my room and I was living in Pasadena at that time. And I would just work on my drafting table 
doing drawings or whatever it is I was doing. And about uh, one o'clock in the morning, I was really tired at that point. The burger probably did not help me at all. And so I'm like, okay, I got to go to sleep. And I would just set my alarm for three hours and get right back up and just keep working. Up into the minute, like I, I would time it. It's like I need thirty minutes to shower and put on my clothes, and it takes me another twenty minutes to get to to school and park and get to class. I would just time it like that. I would just work into the very last possible minute, and I was just repeating this pattern many nights. I didn't even sleep, and especially during midterms and finals. So I hustled and I worked really hard, and it started to show because I was starting to get it. And my one one key advantage that I had over other people was. At this point in my life, I had already developed this mindset of objectivity, like where where the teachers are handing out some pretty harsh crits. People were becoming very defensive, and I could see they're like resisting the whole time. And I was like thinking to myself, why are you resisting? Aren't you here to learn from this instructor, a master at their craft? So I just submitted. I removed whatever little parts of ego I had. And I tried to absorb as much as what they had to say as possible. And if they said, this is too big, okay, I'll make it smaller. Uh, this is not working. Okay, why? And then I'll just keep working on it. And then I could see pretty quickly by week three, four, or five, oh, something's happening here. They're starting to fall behind or I'm moving ahead. And that felt really good. There's nothing like winning or achieving something to build your own self-confidence. And it just began to snowball. I think in the beginning, it was more like a snowflake. But by the time I was done with third term, I felt like this avalanche of energy and confidence. And was that superpower, and I call it a superpower, I mean, you know, you play that game, everyone's like, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? Mine would be to not sleep or to get by on three hours of sleep because I cannot do that. So hearing you say that <laughs> is like, like I'm like in awe. Now, is that something that carries on today? I mean, is that just always been your superpower? I, I think so. Uh, I, I, I'm almost 50 years old now. So nights without sleep take a longer time to recover. And I don't recommend this to anybody. But I think it was just for me, like it was a game and it was competition. And it was like trying to, to win a game with myself. Like, can you push past that limit, that threshold? How bad do you want it? How far are you willing to go to get what it is that you want? And I would do that. Now, I want to say this, and, and there's a very healthy asterisk to this. There's a big caveat to this is that I remember certain periods in school when I had not slept for days and I'm, I'm going like almost crazy. I'm hallucinating. I'm literally hallucinating while I'm driving. I remember one time driving down the street to school at night, coming back from, from dinner or something like that, that I saw the trees, the canopy of trees reach down and I was trying to avoid it with my car. And I was like, oh my God, I am tripping out. I have woken up driving on the wrong side of the road. So this is super dangerous. This is not a badge of honor or courage. I, I do not want anybody, whether you're just starting out, to, to put yourself and your body and your mind through these extended periods of work without sleep. It's dangerous, it's unhealthy, and it's unproductive, period. I had to learn this the hard way. So take it from one workaholic, super crazy, intense guy that that is not the path forward. That being said, I still want it to be my superpower. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you heard him. Do not try that. Don't do this. Kids. Yes. This episode brought to you by Wild Story. Wait, isn't that your company? It is. 
And without the generous support of Wild Story, this show would not be possible. A brand isn't a logo or a tagline or even your product. A brand is a person's gut feeling about a product, service, or company. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. Wild Story helps progressive founders and savvy marketers build purpose-driven brands that connect their business goals with the customers they want to serve so that both the business and the customer needs are met. This results in crazy, happy, loyal customers that purchase again and again, and this is great for business. If that sounds like something you and your team might want to learn more about, reach out at www.wildstory.com and we'd be happy to tell you more. Now back to our show. While at Art Center, you're going through and you, and you mentioned that you, you've, you're getting some momentum, things are starting to happen for you. Was there was there a moment or a, a period where you really started to recognize or identify where you wanted to spend your career or a certain type of uh, discipline? Yeah, I, I thought, um, I, I love type. And I excelled at using type and I knew that, uh, whatever job I had had to use a lot of type. So I was thinking editorial design, maybe some kind of packaging or something like that. And, you know, best laid plans go out the window because in my senior year, as I'm uh, one semester away from graduating, I decided to take a term off. I was feeling a little burnt out at this point. Friend of mine got a job in advertising and she said, Chris, uh, I need a partner. Will you submit your, your portfolio so that, uh, that uh, maybe they'll consider hiring you? And I was thinking to myself, and her name's Colleen, and I was thinking to myself, I'm a graphic designer. What is an advertising agency going to want to do with me? So I put together literally four pieces, four pieces, because nothing else made sense. I put the most conceptual work that I could that was most design-driven that could work for, for an agency. And to my surprise, I was offered this job. And they knew I was still in school and they hired me anyways. So I'm like, okay, fine. C'est la vie. Sayonara. I'm going to take a semester off of school. So I'm gonna, I, I moved to Seattle and they put me up in a corporate hotel. It was just awesome. It was way better than where I was living. And I was working in the ad industry. I was like, this is kind of nice. There's expense accounts, uh, nice office spaces. And this is pretty cool. And you're treated like you're an important person. And I like the feeling of this. But... Ultimately, advertising didn't feel right to me because all of these skills that I acquired, this love for typography, I couldn't use them because advertising was like, find the one right image, put the headline somewhere, don't get too tricky with it, and put the body copy where people can read it. And those constraints made me feel like I was an engine revving, but I got nowhere to go. So ultimately, after graduation, um, I discovered this thing that then became known as motion design. And it would allow me to have a lifetime of learning because there's so many different skill sets that you have to acquire to be good at motion design. So I thought, this is fantastic. It's going to keep me busy, keep me hungry, keep me curious for a really t- long time. And it did. So you mentioned type a lot there. Like, what's cool about type? Type is life, man. Type is thinking made visible. Type is... If you And if you can learn how to design with type, you can learn how to design everything. And it's totally true. So I felt like when I was in typography class with Simon Johnston, he gave me the key to solve any kind of design problem. And it felt so powerful. Like you talk about uh, superpowers. Imagine having a key that opened every lock in the world. That's how it felt. 
So I was in love with it because it, it was the answer. It was everything. And so I, all my big breaks in terms of um, a professional person have come from me having mastery, uh, like soft air quotes here, mastery of typography. It allowed me to get that job at Colton Weber, the advertising agency. It allowed me to work at Epitaph Records because you know what? There are image makers in the world, photographers and illustrators, and then there are designers. And designers, you got to know your type. And type is the thing that pulls it all together in, in terms of your layout and making it sing and communicating the message. So every opportunity, even the early motion graphics opportunities came because I knew how to typeset and then I barely knew how to animate. So I would just send the typeset over to the client. They're like, yeah, that's good. And then I'd animate it minimally. And I made a ton of money doing that. Hundreds of thousands of dollars working on commercials where literally I was just typesetting and moving things on X, Y coordinates. And that was it. And so like, what's, what's hard about type? Like what, what don't we see? Okay. For all you non-typographers out there, type is daunting. Type is scary. There are too many options and too many possibilities. What typeface, what weight, what point size, how much letting, tracking, kerning do you apply to any of these things? Do these two typefaces look good together? And so I can see that a lot of people, they would even tell me, like I had friends that are illustrators, like I love everything about design. I just hate type. I just can't figure it out. And type takes a certain kind of discipline, a way of teaching it and learning and experimenting with very tightly controlled constraints. And this repetition of exp exploration will lead you to understand how things work. It's training your eye and training your hand or your mind to see things and connections and making things related and learning how to break the rhythm. So it's that work. Like if you want to be um, a composer, maybe uh, a concert level pianist, it's like putting in the hours of learning the keys and, and, and the things that my, my two boys practice every single day. It's boring, it's monotonous, it's repetitive, but it's hard to be great at that thing unless you put in that kind of work. And most people aren't willing to do that. Did you just feel that? Did you just see what happened? Like you just got like, you lit up, you got like fired up. You like started like your body language got all like animated and uh, not everyone can see us as they're listening in the podcast, yeah. but I can tell you, Chris, just like he, he like, he leaned into the camera. And so I can tell that you truly dig type. I love type. Type is life. Yeah, type is life, and you mean it. That's that's really awesome. Well, in addition to uh, the future uh, that you you described at the beginning of the show, you're mm -hmm. you're kind of best known also for uh, founding the design agency Blind. Uh, how did that come about? And like, how did you end up even starting an agency? And and we can go from there. Yeah, the origin story of Blind is a little tricky, so I'll give you the the, the briefest version of it in case there's some other questions you have to ask. I was freelancing in Los Angeles, Hollywood in, in particular, doing design, motion design, and a little bit of animation. And I got a call out of the blue from my uncle who asked me, ever since I could remember, you've always wanted to start a business. And now that you're done with school, is this something you want to do? And I said, absolutely. He says, so here's the deal. I have a business partner. He develops hotels all over the world. And he's interested in becoming a partner with somebody who wants to start a design firm. So here's what we're going to do, because we're going to be in Los Angeles, and I want you to meet us at the Wesson Bonaventure, which I've never been to up until that point. And I want you to put together a business plan. How much money do you want? What are you willing to do? How are you going to make the money? And so this is like early dawn of the internet. So I'm calling my friends 
uh, my roommate's um, father, who's an investment banker, like, can you tell me what's in, what's required of a business plan? This is like old school internet. You just called up a human, right? And he told me, and I was just writing in my notepad furiously, and then I'd get on my computer and I'd start writing this this business plan, forecasting first through fifth, five years of uh, projections and just basing on nothing. Like we project we'll lose money for two and a half years and then by the third or fourth year, we'll make money and this is what we're thinking. So put this together and and true to my nature, I hadn't slept and I'm meeting them for dinner at, at the hotel and I go in there, we, I meet him, his name is Bob and I'm talking to him and he's, and I said, here's the business plan, print it out, here we go. And he, he takes his finger, he looks at it, and he just goes through a couple of pages. He didn't really look at it. I think he just looks at the bottom line, the numbers, right? And he's like, okay. And uh, at the end of dinner, uh, he reaches into his um, jacket pocket, he pulls out a checkbook. I'm like, well, what's he doing? He's paying for dinner via a check. That's kind of pretty old school. He writes me a check on the spot for $10,000. He says, this is a good faith gesture. He goes, you know what that means? He's like, we're going to do business together. Okay, I'm like 22 years old. I've just been out of school for like three, four months here. So it's like, I think September, October, graduated in the summer. And my very first encounter with a business investor, venture capitalist, like a deal's done and we don't even know what the terms are. That's how I started my business, basically. And then the place I was working at, I said, guys, I'm wrapping up my booking. I'm gonna start my own company. I have an opportunity to do this. And I remember... My, my, my boss, my supervisor at that time, his name is Ian Dawson, who I still know today. He was looking at me like, my God, they make him really cocky at Art Center, don't they? Because the kid was just barely working for us. He, he turns on a full-time job offer from us and then he starts his own company. And he said to me, he's, he smiled and, and he's a great guy. He said, he smiled and shook my hand and says, good luck with everything. And I know what he was thinking. Good luck because I'll see you here in a couple of months when you totally fail. 25 years later, still doing the thing, same thing. Yeah. And was it called Blind from day one? It was. It was called Blind. And I think it was called Blind Visual Communication because my business partner, the investor at that point in time, just didn't like what I really wanted to call it. Now, a few months into the business, we were making money, we're profitable. And he had promised $100,000 in terms of investment to us. He could not produce it. One of his properties was not going well and he had bigger fish to fry. So he basically defaulted his partnership and gave up his $10,000 investment. And so after that had happened, I dissolved blind visual communication and I just changed it to what I really wanted to call it, which is uh, blind visual propaganda. I was really still infatuated with Russian constructivism in terms of design. I love the aesthetic. And if you guys don't know what that is, if, you, if you're familiar with Shepard Fairey's work, Obey Giant, that's basically Russian constructivism kind of uh, co-opted for street art. Yeah. And did it have that same kind of look and feel that, that like, you know, I've seen, did it have, it, it was, is it blackout? Is that the type? Or is no, no. English? I know what you're talking about. Like yeah. black letter, like yeah, um, black letter. Yeah. In terms black of the typeface. No, it was um, more experimental in the early days. And we tried all kinds of things, mixing serif and sans serif typefaces together doing Baroque and Gothic things with it. And it evolved all over the place from, from those kind of grungy, the, the cult of the scratch, uh, as some, some creative people would call it, moving into super clean, ultra modern, just minimalist design. We, we've played around with our identity for, for quite some time. And, and you know, it's, it's a design company. We'll, we'll do whatever we want. Why'd you call it blind? It wasn't until, yeah, it wasn't until the later part of our company 
that I had come to this realization that we were one of the early pioneers of motion design in that we were there at the beginning. I think we're the, like one and a half generation motion design, right? The first was like a guy named Flavio Campa who was doing desktop animation and video. So we're just right after him. And we wanted to celebrate this. This was something that was unique to us. So I started pursuing this identity design that made it feel really old. Hence the calligraphy, the black letter. Uh, that's what we were doing. Yeah, and then where did the name come from? Why you'd said you'd wanted to call it blind. Like why? Where, yeah. What was that all about? Well, there was something that was intriguing about blind in that uh, I, I love these kinds of I, like ironic names where we're graphic designers. We, we do visual communication. The, a name like blind provokes dialogue. But I also tell you a dirty secret, which is I grew up loving skateboarding, right? So Vision Streetwear was a pretty big company. It was a corporate company. And there was a company called Blind Skateboards, who was a, a faction of ex-Vision uh, skaters. And it was kind of a mud in their eye. And I love that kind of punk attitude towards it. So I took the same spirit. I'm like, we'll call ourselves blind. That makes a lot of sense. We're doing design. And there's a lot of really professional firms out there. We'll be professional in our own way. We'll be the pirates of design. And, and we wanted to kind of have that edge to us. Yeah. And Blind had a, a lot of success. I mean, we could, we could have, you know, could talk for hours about all the things you worked on, but you know, you were fortunate enough, you, you won an Emmy, uh, which is, which is awesome and, 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 and super incredible. I mean, what was that like? I mean, did you even imagine that you'd be up there accepting an Emmy for your work at any given time? No, uh, for a lot of different reasons. Now we've been in business since 1995 and we've won a ton of awards. Basically, I would sit there and think to myself, I don't want, I want to win that award. And we would apply. And generally speaking, we would win. And the Emmy was not part of, like, it wasn't even on the radar for me because it was a whole different world because we made commercials and music videos and Emmys were generally for TV shows, not for theatrical, but for television. Okay. Because theatrics or theater has um, the Oscars and other kinds of awards. So one of my office managers said, you know, Chris, we're going to get you an Emmy. I was like, okay. Her name was, uh, oh, spacing on her name now. Sorry. So she's like, I want to help you win an, an Emmy. I'm like, okay. So she went through the entire Emmy kind of submission criteria and she found a category for one of our projects that fit into that. And this is kind of the art of submission. So, I mean, there's a whole nother story there. So she found that you could submit an animated work, a music video qualified for a special category called Individual Achievement in Art Direction for Animation. This was a juried award, meaning uh, some years they would give zero awards and some years they would give several. And it was up to the, the animation peer group to decide whether or not you deserve one or not. So she, she took a video that we had just done that I was very proud of. It was for the Ravenettes called The Heart of Stone. And she submitted it. And to my surprise, they're like, you win. You get one. And I was thinking, this is excellent. Until they send you this email saying, uh, you need to prepare your acceptance speech. And it can only be, I think, 30 seconds long or 45 seconds max. They'll cut you off. And you need to be short. You need to be pithy. Say something that'll make the editors keep you in the edit when this thing airs. And I was struggling with this uh, because this is in 2010. I had not done a lot of public speaking at that point and definitely never even thought of doing a YouTube video at that point. And so this kind of wrecked me. Like, I can be there on stage. I can grab this statue. I can hold it up. But I don't want to say anything because I'm still not comfortable speaking. So that was super scary for me. 
Yeah, I, I can imagine. And um, I think that you mentioned, I think I read a post just recently where you were talking about that, that you, you got kind of bailed out where uh, yeah. they, were, they were running late. And so you, you were sweating, you were in your tuxedo, you were like yeah. uh, sweating it hard. Uh, what happened there? Now, you, you need to understand, like I could look that part. The facade doesn't tell you a lot about what's inside, right? At that point in time, I was just like doing the P90X program. So I was really thin, very fit. Some people looked at me and like, are you sick? So I was wearing this brand new Dolce & Gabbana suit, tie, everything. I was like ready to go. But inside, I was like crying like a child because we're sitting there in the, in the theater and, you know, they're they're like going through all the awards. There's a lot of awards to get through. And it's, it's, it's like, um, you know, when you ride a roller coaster, the line and the anticipation of the drop are the scariest parts. When you're chugging up the roller coaster and you're about to hit that point in where you're kind of floating and you're going to free fall for a second, that's the scariest part when you're hanging over the top. And that's what it was like for three hours, sitting in that theater, waiting for somebody to grab me to go backstage. So here's the weird part to the story. So I'm, I'm shaking and my, my, my knees are like, you know, I'm just bouncing all over the place. My wife's like, puts her hand on my knee and is like, honey, you got to just calm down. You're, 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 first of all, you're driving me crazy, but this is not going to help you. And the reason why I was so nervous was because like 30 seconds, what do I say? What do I say? Do I thank my mom and dad and my cousins or, or my teachers? Like, where do I go with this thing? And I had something prepared the night before, but you start second guessing yourself. You start thinking, I just don't like the way that sounds. This is terrible. Let me go all heartfelt. No, no. Let me be all inspirational. No, let me tell the refugee story. No, be humble. Like, no, be boastful. Like, I don't know what to do. And it's really weird because we were not sitting with the animation peer group because I was in the title design peer group, totally different group. It's weird. And so everybody that was going to receive an award was already backstage. So there's a page who's walking down the aisleway, turning left, saying, Christo, turning to the other side, Christo. And my wife's like, slaps me on the shoulders. Like, I think that guy's looking for you. I'm like, nobody's looking for me. I turn over and I could see this guy. He's making his way out of the theater. I'm like, shoot. I get up. I'm like, excuse me, excuse me. Just moving past. The ceremony's still going on. And I, I run after him. I'm like, hey, are you looking for me? He goes, oh my God, we are so late. I couldn't find you in your group. I'm like, I know. I was sitting over there. He's like, I didn't get the note. We got to cut through the front. We're not going to go the back route. There's no time. And I was like, oh my God, I'm already nervous about the talk. And now we're racing towards the front. And here's the interesting part. They put all the beautiful people up front. You know, when the camera pans and you see all the slabs, they're in the front, okay? And so we're like rushing by. I'm like looking past them as we're going up, like just thinking to myself, don't fall, don't fall. My shoes are slippery. They're brand new shoes. We race right up the stage into the back. I'm waiting in line now with these other award winners. The guy in front turns over, turns around. He's like, you know, and he's angry. He's like, oh, you know, they're running long. They're not going to let us do our acceptance speech. And I got to tell you, it's like no words have made me happy up until that point. I'm like, oh my God. And this just calmness just washed over my body. I was like, this is so good. And he's like, you know what? I'm not going to stand for this. This is wrong. This is our moment. Just because they're late should not affect us. I'm what are you going to do? He's like, I'm going to go talk to the producer. I was like, oh, dude, just leave it alone, man. Leave it alone. And so now this whole kind of like uh, emotion of like scared, nervous, what I'm going to say, dips down to like calm and peacefulness. It goes right back up through the roof. Like, oh my God, I go back to like mm, rehearsing what I'm going to say. 
he comes back a moment later and he looks at me he's like and i'm like and he's like no dice walk up there you grab your statue and come right back i was like oh that sucks i'll smile like <laughs> i was like oh my god i'm sure my pits were like drenched with sweat and just this emotion of running up there this up and down finally i go out there i was just like hey man just try to take a good picture. And I couldn't even take a good picture. My head's all crooked and my arm's all weird, but whatever. Well, you've got the picture. You've got the Emmy. I got it. And you know, and you and you, you have this uh, agency and and you've won an Emmy and and you're you're serving clients and things are going great, but that's you, you kind of that's not enough, right? Like so like, the, another vision starts to creep in and starts to I'm assuming I'm editorializing here, rattle around your head a little bit and starts kind of keeping you up. Uh, when does that happen? And, and kind of how does that happen? Yeah. So for, for some context here, like I said before, we make commercials and music videos, mostly commercials. That's how we pay our bills for really large advertising agencies. And for us, the peak was, I think, in 2007, when we almost hit $7 million in billings, right? So the commercial industry, as you now know, is tied to TV and, and people were starting to stream content more and they were able to use a DVR and skip commercials. So I could see the writing on the wall. Like when everybody was talking about TiVo and how cool it was, and I was using TiVo to skip all the commercials, I was thinking, wait a minute, we're in a line of business that's not going to be around. I don't want to be waiting for my death. The writing was clearly on the wall. And so I started trying to do different things that would make us less reliant on commercial work. And I tried a bunch of different things. And then we got into doing brand strategy and digital design as an agency, and we had success there. So I was thinking, okay, I, I, I quickly moved us. And when I say quickly, it took a couple of years, moved us away from relying purely on commercial work to working with clients directly, building their brand, doing their strategic work, building their websites. And that was really cool. Simultaneously at, at this time, my friend Jose Caball, my, my friend Jose Caballer was like, Chris, let's go make videos on YouTube together because I want to start an education company. And he said, I know you do too. And it's true, I did. At this point, I was already teaching for 15 years. So I thought, yeah, all right, let's try this thing. And it was really weird. It was super awkward for me because I'm a behind the camera talent. I'm not in front of camera talent. People know what that means. So just looking into a piece of glass and talking to nobody, that was very, very scary for me. I was still not comfortable with seeing my own face and hearing my own voice. And slowly but surely, over the course of a couple of years, I started to find my groove and figure out, oh, there's an audience here. And they actually want to learn something. And I didn't think YouTube was used for anything other than like goofy joke and prank videos, right? And that definitely was not something I wanted to do. But an audience appeared that wanted to learn more about design principles, that wanted to hear from a person who was making business level decisions for with really big clients and sharing that knowledge in terms of pricing, negotiation, communication, and managing teams and all that stuff. And that's what I was teaching. And this is really the thing that kind of excited me because if, if you're able to help another human being and if you're able to do this at scale and you're able to reach so many people, I got to tell you, that's like, there's that kind of joy that no money can buy. And that's when I started to think, I want to build a viable business so this becomes my primary thing and not an afterthought. It's not going to be a hobby. Like I would tell people, I'm very clear about the things I do for fun that's a hobby, like fishing, where I know I will make no money and things I want to do as a business enterprise or an endeavor. 
So it has to make money. So at this point in time in the storyline, Jose and I, we split up. He goes his way. I go my way. In 2016, we start the future. We start making money. We start making content. And by about the end of 2018, my entire design team is now folded into making content with me. So we stopped taking on client work in December of 2018. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that struck me about that that story and the the retelling of those events is that like you're so generous with what you do share online and i think now it, it's still even hard for people to do that today but i think that's more of a common uh, message that we're hearing hey give and you will receive give be- you know before you get you know be generous with your your information but that wasn't always the way and and it wasn't always the way people did things. And I know like some of your most popular YouTube videos are ones where you like talk about pricing, like this thing that like no one used to talk about. Like it was like this taboo, like where do you think, where do you think this like idea of the generous gift of, of being open, of being transparent, of talking about things that were people weren't talking about in a way uh, that you were giving like service, you know, it wasn't, it, it was this real kind of giving kind of mentality. Where'd that come from? Because I don't think that that's always uh, intuitive for everybody. Yeah. I think it comes from the spirit of being a teacher first. And I've had teachers uh, at Art Center when they were working professionals and they would hold back. And it always made me feel really weird. Like there was a teacher who taught uh, 3D animation and visual effects and we would ask, how do you do that? Like that shot that you worked on. And he was like, you have to figure it out. And so he kept his, his trade secrets like close to his chest. And I was thinking, how are you serving your students this way? And I knew then I did not want to be that kind of teacher. If you're not going to show up as a teacher and give everything you've got, what is the point? Just don't even become a teacher then. I don't really know what you're doing. And so in business... People are are very tight with their information because they think giving away any bit of information is going to be to their detriment. It's a disadvantage to tell people how much you charge, how you charge, because, well, nobody else is doing it. If you give it out, they're likely to use it against you. But in this point in time, I was just thinking, you know what? When I'm with my students, I tell them everything. I tell them the horror stories, the war stories, the trials and the tribulations, and they love it because they want to save themselves from some of that pain. I didn't know that you could say this openly without massive negative repercussions. And so you do what everybody does. You you try it out a little bit and see if there's tremendous backlash against you. And I knew I was saying things that my competitors didn't want me to say, that agencies didn't want me to say, and I was going to risk a little bit. So I was making small gambles at the beginning, not one giant gamble, by revealing this information. And for the most part, people were super cool about it. And they're thinking to themselves, like, finally, somebody's going to say it because we need to know. I think the other reason why people are very reluctant to share this kind of information is because if you're doing well, they're going to think you're boastful. And if you're not doing well, they're going to discredit you. So what is the sweet spot? And this is the narrative that we tell ourselves in our head. And I think most of it is untrue. Now, I think there's going to be a small percentage of, of people, regardless of what lane you're in, how how kind and generous you are, that are going to always question your motives. Because I would see those comments always just at the beginning. It's like, you know, what's the play here? Why is he doing this? There's something that's up. And they would say it publicly and they would say in small circles. But I can't live my life 
in fear of what a few people will say while trying to help as many people as possible. So they're the detractors, the, the haters. They're out there. I know who they are. I know, I know the packs in which they travel in, if you will. They're there. And I'm going to ignore them for the sake of everybody else that wants to show up. So what's your biggest struggle right now? My biggest struggle right now is learning how to create a scalable marketing engine or funnel so that more people can convert into becoming customers of ours. I have this big, big dream. In order to fulfill this dream, we need capital. I would tell people, you know, if you have this amazing cause, you need capital because without capital, there's no cause. And it's not a small dream. It's not a hobby. It's not a lifestyle business. I want to hire some of the best storytellers, writers, producers, teachers, people who know marketing and people who have different uh, subject matter expertise. And in order to be able to do that, I got to sell more product. One of the biggest challenges I have right now is I want to be able to approach an instructor, a potential instructor for us and say, make content and distribute it on our channel because we're going to really support you, not only in terms of the production, but also the marketing and you're going to make money and your legacy is going to be preserved. I can't do that if we're still struggling to figure out how to sell courses. Yeah. And, and that, that's a great segue into my, my next question in that, like, what's the future look like for the future? How far out are we talking about, Mark? How far out would you like to go? You know, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and you, you can answer it any way you want, but you know, it's kind of like, you know, what's next or yeah, what's, what's the, you know, what popped into your mind when I said that? Well, there's two things that popped into my mind, the immediate future and the far distant future. So let me answer it that way then. The immediate future is there's a curriculum that I've sketched out and there's lots of gaps that we need filled because I was thinking that the first goal for us is to be able to replace what I feel are the important parts that you need to learn from going to a private art school in terms of getting a, an education design. So we created a few courses, but we're far away from where we need to be. And so I need to recruit instructors to be able to teach and make it economically viable for them to do this with us. The distant future is about having pods all over the world where people can come and learn and to gather in social ways and, and build community around learning about the broader topic of creativity and design, where the master content will be recorded somewhere and then piped into these learning centers and hubs. I still, as much as I'm a proponent for distance-based learning, still believe in the value of just being around other human beings. And so we want to be able to do this. And ideally, these hubs would have living spaces so that people can jump from hub to hub. If you're traveling through a specific area and you want to crash there, we'll figure out some way that it makes sense economically for both of us so that you can stay there and you can learn with other people. Uh, we, we know that they do programs within universities called, uh, what are they called, artists in residence, where they kind of pay for people to be there to make their art, to do their research. We would love to have that, but just on a much, much bigger scale. And so, Chris, I, I asked this question in some form to every guest that comes on the show, and you recently released your own video, which I kind of got very nervous about because I think the title of your video, I'm paraphrasing because I'll probably get it wrong, is something to yeah. the, the effect of advice to my younger self. But mm -hmm. I, uh, I I listened to it this morning just to make sure, and I, I don't think it, it, it ruins this question. So I want you to go yeah. back. I want you to go back to the Silicon Valley time. I want you to go back where you're, you're, you know, perusing those skateboards in the skate shop, young Chris. And 
let's look the other way. What would he say if he ran into you today? Nobody's ever asked that kind of question before. What would young Chris say? Uh, he would probably be very skeptical, uh, maybe, not cynical, but just skeptical. Like, are you sure this is how we get from here to there? And do I have these skills? Are you sure you're not somebody else? And I'll tell you something. Years ago, I was watching an early TED Talk by Gary Vaynerchuk before he became like Gary V the way everybody knows him today. And he was giving a talk, and I think it was to promote his book, like Jab, Jab, Right Hook or something like that. And he was giving a talk also at, uh, I believe, USC to a bunch of like really interested students in the business school, I believe. And here's this guy, he was just talking, dropping F-bombs and his ability to articulate at the speed in which he's articulating and to be able to pull upon references and quotes and authors and ideas and formulas and these really kind of digestible sound bites, I was blown away. And I remember looking at that video thinking, oh my God, how does one become that kind of person? Is this a skill that I can acquire? I'm not sure. Fast forward many years later, it's like, oh, I'm not talking as fast as him. I don't have these great sound bitey kind of segments to drop on people. But now I've learned so much and that I can reference certain quotes without looking at them and certain key ideas and be able to recall them upon uh, whenever necessary, upon demand. And I'm just like, whoa, this is actually, it's possible. So young Chris would look at older Chris probably in the same way that I was looking at Gary Vaynerchuk just a few short years ago. And that is Chris Doe of the future. I could talk with and interview Chris for hours. He has this unique blend of knowing how valuable his time is, and yet he is always so gracious and generous. Type is life, y'all. You heard it here. I must admit, I'm a closet typography student, and I find it so fascinating. I'm not sure I've made it to the level where it's life, but I'm working on it. A big thank you to Chris Doe and the team at The Future on a mission to change one billion lives. I have a feeling it's going to happen sooner than later. We will link to all things Chris Doe and The Future in the show notes. They have a treasure trove of amazing content on YouTube and Instagram, as well as their website, www.thefuture.com. No E in future. And if you know of a guest who should appear on our show, please drop me a line at podcast at wildstory.com. Our best guests, like Chris, come from referrals from past guests and our listeners. That's you. Well, that's the show. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. A lot of big stories and I cannot lie, you other storytellers can't deny. 